It's good to be with you guys this morning. It's kind of fun. Uh, I was thinking about this morning's message, and we're in a series called Paradox, and it's on faith. And it's, it's hard not to think of many things in Scripture or many things to do with faith without there somehow being a tie-in back to church, local church, where we talk about faith, where we're um, kind of united or we're in relationship with other people of faith. And so there's always this kind of subtle tie-in back to church for me. And so um, it brings up things like, you know, why did, why did we plant a church in the first place? You know, what was, what was it that drove that? Um, and what drove it was a, um, an obsession. I mean, it was a calling. Uh, back in 97, felt like God said, go start a church. And if you guys know that story, I, at the time, was, was feeling out Christianity in a whole lot of ways and, and just kind of didn't even know what that would look like or how that would look like. When I first heard about church planting, it was like this light bulb went off in my mind. Because um, I don't know about you, but when I, when I grew up, you drive by churches every street corner, right? You just assume they've always been there. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's just not something you think about when you're playing baseball or going skiing that, like, that church started, like, maybe 10 years ago, and somebody started it, and there was a process that had to happen for that to get started. The reality is it has nothing to do with you, so you just kind of drive by it, and you just make this assumption that, like the Kmart or anything else, it's just, you know, I've, I've always known it to be a part of the city, you know, you, you just think it's always been there. So to get into church planting and to pray for a decade um, about planting a church and for six years with my wife about planting a church specifically here in Bend and to um, obsess about that, like labor over it, um, take endless notebooks full of notes and really dream about what is at the heart of church and how can God continue to use church to change the world? Because the church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. Um, when, when Jesus comes back, the church will still be here. The church will exist uh, in heaven, the, the community of believers, and even marriage won't. It's, it's, the, it's the institution that God has designed to be universally relevant for his people. And so to really kind of try and grapple with that, and can the church in America be relevant to speak to people? Can it be attractional enough to bring people in that don't know God? I mean, can it be a city on a hill? Can it be something that has that light? Can it, can it draw? Can it have energy? Can the people in church look excited enough to reflect the fact that the God we say we're worshiping like fits our body language? You know what I'm talking about? My kids have been um, on me the last couple days because I, I was trying to dig myself out of some piles of work. And, uh, and so they're asking me all these questions. How come when we ask you a question, you don't answer? <laughs> it's a very complex question. And, well, because I'm focused on something else, which means preoccupied. And so I, I, I have to, you know, I wasn't hearing you that way kind of thing. Well, kids pick up right away that when you're faking it, you know, you're, you're acting like they're important or they're your priority and your body language doesn't show it or the fact that you're delaying like um, 45 seconds before you answer and they have to ask it a couple times. You know what I'm saying? Like they read right away that, that it's not as important as you say it is. And so can church be a place again where our focus, our, our, our preoccupation is with God enough that when people look at us, 
our body language shows excitement for Christ, for the Christian community, for this, this hope of resurrection that we have, that it, it all makes sense. Does that make sense? Like, and so I yearned for that. I mean, I'd seen too many churches that felt stale or casual or inauthentic or very religious, but not something I could really um, get my heart excited about. And, and so just thinking about um, today and this sermon series, just church is laced all throughout it. And Paul talks in one of his letters um, about the, the, the Thessalonian church and about how their faith has gone out and is known throughout um, the countryside in some sense that people a long ways from this church know of the faith of this church and that in some sense the faith and the body language and the joy and the excitement of this particular church is having a leadership effect it's making an impact it's demonstrating influence on a whole culture and I thought to myself like um I'll give the rest of my life for that. I, I want my kids when they, um, and I've, I've said this to them before, they don't know what the heck I'm talking about, um, but Tamara knows what I'm talking about. I want them someday when they're married or they're living somewhere else, when, when they're talking to Christians and those Christians are like, yeah, I'm just kind of so over church. I'm over it. Um, it's all kind of hypocritical or it's all stale or it's all whatever that my daughters would say, no, it's not all like that. Sure, there's, there's some like that, but I've seen, I've been a part of a church that is different and it can be different. And so, I mean, whether, whether you're here and you're looking to move in a month, like I would want you to go somewhere and to say to people, listen, it can be different because you were at Antioch. Now, I mean, we've got probably still a whole heck of a long way to go for us to live into our desires, I think, for church. But if we're the church that owns that collectively, then we can become the story that we're dying to hear. Um, when I first started going to a college group at Clemson, um, it was actually because my dad manipulated me, if I remember right. Now, I haven't thought about this in years. Uh, I wanted a car stereo. This is, yeah, this is how it went down. Um, I wanted a car stereo, and I had to agree to go to FCA every week. <laughs> I was remembering this for the first time um, in a long time. Um, my dad uh, cared, still does, cares a whole lot about me. Um, and at every turn, tried to steer me in the right direction, even though I was um, pretty obstinate. Uh, still am. Um, I've got great parents, you know, that that never stopped caring. By the way, I should have like a stool. This is just going to be family time. Um, our daughter, our oldest daughter, went to youth group for the first time this last week, right? And uh, we firmly believe at Antioch that it's ultimately the parents and the house and the family that shapes people and the, you know, the be-all, end-all is not youth group, right? You know, don't, don't think that youth group is going gonna, is gonna to raise your kid for you. You know, we, we kind of preach that and stuff like that, that, that youth group is there as an assist, right? But I tell you what, it sure feels good when it's a youth group that you can trust and believe is a really strong assist in what you're trying to do as parents. Does that make sense? Like, here, 
as a parent this week, it felt really, really good to send my daughter with her Bible to youth group and have her come back with all sorts of notes and super excited about her faith. And the fact that she's got friends from in town, both that have Christian parents and don't, that come to Antioch's youth group because those girls want to be there because they learn something. Um, so if you guys see Luke Such, um, he's getting married soon. Buy big wedding gifts for him. <laughs> Buy wedding gifts that can only be redeemed in Bend, Oregon, so that he never thinks about leaving. You know, uh, help him develop deep roots because um, either your kids or your grandkids um, are going to lean into that. But anyways, back to college uh, and my stereo. <laughs> um, when I when I first started going to college groups at Clemson, after months and months and months, I began to realize something. When you walk into somewhere and you just sit down and you kind of observe, like, you know, you think of practical things that that I don't think other people think of that have just been there a whole long time. But I I came in and I sat down and after a couple months I said, you know, it's really interesting. Um, The pattern here is that there are a few people that are seeing God move in amazing ways And they're getting up and they're sharing that to other people that are going, oh, wow, Um, that's amazing how God has moved in that person's life. I wish God would move like that in my life, right? And so I'm kind of watching this. Like there's a few people that have these amazing stories. And then these other people going, "Um, wow, and they're jealous that they don't have an amazing story. You You see the dynamic that I was seeing? Does that make sense? And so here's where I, where I kind of took it was, well, all things being equal, I'd rather be one of the people telling the stories instead of hearing them and always being jealous. That was kind of how my mind processed it, you know. And that's kind of what led me down this road. And then in that road, it's what led where I think God led me to the local church because in the local church, is where God in, in so many ways manifests his power. And what we're talking about this morning is the paradox of power. I think it's, if we really were honest with ourselves, is our biggest hangout. In the ancient Near East, um, you, you had gods, different nations had gods, different areas had gods, and countries would go to war and one country would win and the other one would lose. And so the losers would take the God of, of the victor country. Why? Because that God must have been more powerful. You see? Because these two armies or t- two countries kind of fighting was also uh, a referendum on the strength of, of whatever God that they were worshiping or the deity that they were bowing down to. And so if this country won over this country, the power of that God must be stronger. And so you kind of had people maneuvering and changing and there was lots of gods. And it wasn't until Israel came along that you had this strong um, monotheistic religion in this sense that um, God's power is not always on, on the referendum by what happens down here. God's power is above that and his will is above that. And sometimes God is actually the one administering the fact that you're, you're losing a war. I mean, what's amazing about the exile with the Israelites is that they get defeated and they get carted off into exile 
and they retain the belief and the worship of God, of Yahweh. I mean, that, that was remarkable because God had prophesied ahead of time and during it as to why it was he was going to allow this to take place. But in the ancient Near East, power was a really big deal with God. It, it was the proof text for God. It was, it was uh, what allowed you to lean into, serve, and, and obey a God. And I think we don't talk about it in those terms anymore. We talk about, well, are you a Christian or not? Do you believe or not? And we kind of take that question a little bit more culturally. Like, uh, yeah, I'm a Christian as opposed to maybe a Muslim or whatever. Or, you know, I grew up in a Christian home or we were kind of come from a Christian family or I, you know, on the holidays, that's where I go is to a Christian church or a Protestant church. And we kind of just talk about our affiliation or if we had to pick one, where would we line up or what does our worldview kind of hold? But we never really get to this question of are we, are we 100% radically invested into this faith that we have obedience and following God because we recognize there is no other power and no power greater. Does that make sense? The power of God is at stake or, or, or our belief in the power of God is manifested in every decision we make in every allegiance we take. If you laid in bed last night obsessing about finances and trying to think of all the ways you could steer through that, there's a very good chance that you think the power of economics and random chance in your life is greater than the power of God over your finances and the circumstances you uh, are confronted with. Does that make sense? If you resorted to gossip to try to preemptively undercut the credibility of the person who's your enemy right now, if you resorted to losing your character to preemptively strike to minimize the voice and the power and the capacity of that person that you think means you harm rather than in prayer, releasing that over to God and saying, you are going to protect me against my enemies. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And God, help me to not only live in the fear of what that person can do to me, business partner, um, the other girl in high school that's got it out for you, whatever, right? Um, I don't know why my mind would go to that. Um, mean girls or something. Um, but if you resorted to that rather than saying, God, I'm going to trust you, and not only that, but your power is great enough to, to help me see the difficulty in that person's life because nobody is all bad. Nobody is all bad. And nobody, nobody is all good. And if you're getting the bad slice of that person pointed at you, you're getting the bad slice of that person. But it doesn't mean that they don't love their mom or that they don't have any people in their life that they serve, or that they, you know what I'm saying? There are other parts of that person that other people are getting, even if you're not. And if you can't let God and, and the power of the resurrection in your life 
help you see that so that you can love your enemy and pray for your enemy, then maybe you think the power that that person has or, or the potential for harm that they have, that they can bring you away, that that power is greater than the power of God. Do you understand that every decision we make manifests in some sense what is in our heart and what we truly believe about power. And the, the reason I think we don't talk about this is because I think we've reframed the conversation wrong in our minds and because we've done it, we've set up um, what I would call a Santa Claus syndrome in, in, in our faith that if we look at it too much, we're going to we're, we think we're going to stop believing altogether. Let me explain that one more time. Santa Claus is fun to have in your world, right? I like it. It's fun. It's tied to the holiday that I like. It's not harmful. But if I really look at it and lean into it, I'm going to realize it's just, it's, 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 com it's completely empty. And I don't want it to be empty I'd like to at least still have the cultural benefit of Santa Claus and, and, and that I can sing the songs and listen to it on the radio and watch the movies and enjoy at least that measure of how it kind of is a part of, of my life. Does that make sense? So I kind of just tolerate the fact that it's not true and experience the benefits anyway. When Jesus said in the book of Matthew twice, that if you have faith that can move mountains, it's just faith of a mustard seed. If you have the smallest amount of faith, dear disciples, he was talking to his disciples, dear disciples, if you guys only knew that the smallest amount of faith, with the smallest amount of faith, you could literally say to this mountain, move, and it would move. You know, if you really understood the power of God, Um, so here's the Santa Claus syndrome. Any of you guys ever seen dirt levitate? Anyone ever seen um, a geographical feature with somebody looking at it and praying move? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody ever heard of it? Anybody ever think that they've heard of someone that's heard of it? <laughs> and so we take this verse literally, we'll unpack it in just a minute here, and we kind of are aware that if we really turned and looked at it and pressed into it, that instead of fueling our faith in the power of God, it would actually probably begin to hollow out our faith in the power of God. And we don't want to lose faith in the power of God, so we're not going to think about the power of God or the power of faith that is available to believers. We're just going to write that part out of the Christian life and then continue to experience the relational benefits of the love that's all around us when we talk about Christ and the resurrection and God. Does that make sense? So we kind of have this sixth sense that we don't really know what to do with it, so we're not going to really press into it. 
And because we don't press into it, at least we can hang on to this. But this is different than truly believing in the power of God made available to the believer by faith. So we somehow accept an unchristian Christian faith. So let's jump into this because if there's any one thing that I want to see happen this morning, it's that we would walk out renewed in our hope, expectancy, faith in the power of God that can and does work in powerful ways in our lives and around us. Sound all right? All right. First thing is this. By the way, um, ah, let's just jump in this. Uh, 2 Kings 5. Carolyn sent me this this week. This is from uh, Carolyn Berry's devotional time. I love knowing a worship pastor sits down with her Bible and has devotions. Um, sounds like a little thing. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's, it's no little thing. To me, it's a huge thing. She sends this verse, like, hey, I have no idea. This, you know, I was reading this. Um, God kind of put it on my heart. Sends it to me, and I kind of laughed because it was exactly the direction of where we're going this week. But so the first thing I want to talk about is the terms of power. Who dictates and what are our expectations of the terms of power? So if, you, if you're taking notes, I'll kind of give you at least three things. And the first one is this. Our expectations of and who gets to dictate the terms of power? Second, Second Kings 5. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. But he was a valiant soldier and had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. And by all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how this other king is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel has a view of the power of God that says, um, this is all politics here. I don't really believe that there's something God's going to do into this. And I really feel helpless and afraid of earthly powers because I'm being, I'm being set up here. What's going to happen when, when this guy doesn't get healed? So this is the king of Israel. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. I mean, let's contextualize this. Why did you gossip about your enemy? Why did you... Spend six hours stressing about affairs you can't control rather than praying to me or listening to me on your bed at night when you were worried about your finances. Why, 
Why did you look to some other religion because you, you were so stressed and didn't know how to cope with life rather than looking to Scripture and having devotions and coming to me in worship and, and, and letting me speak into this? You know, Elisha looks at the king and says, why are you immediately freaking out on a human level without consulting God or consulting God's prophet? Why are you so afraid of earthly power? So Elisha says this and says, send him to me. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, notice this, he doesn't go to him. He sends a messenger to him. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Aren't they cleaner, uh, more pleasant to the eye, more healing to agricultural purposes, etc.? Are these rivers not better why not wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman brought money that Elisha won't accept later. <clears throat> Naaman brought power and prestige. He was coming with a letter from the king and was coming to a man and he expected a certain amount of earthly respect with regard to who he was. And Elisha was like, you're a leper. You're a mortal. You're someone coming to me because your God or, or your medicine or your own devices aren't enough. And Elisha honors him by appealing to his God on his behalf. But Elisha worships God and submits the power of God. Naaman came expecting a certain kind of respect due him. It's going to look this way. I'm going to come out and he's going to deal with me, call me by name, validate that I'm down here on official business and that I'm worth this. And then he goes, and this is how it's going to look. Harry Potter is going to come out with his wand and he's going to um, spell of, I don't know what the different spells are. Um, there's a difference, I don't know, whatever the thing is that would be in Harry Potter. And he's going to do this, and then I'm going to magically see it, like, transform. I'm going to see that mountain move. And um, instead, he wants me to go wash in a dirty river that's not from my own country. It's from a lesser country. It's not the Deschutes. It's the... There you go. I don't even know. Um, what would be a dirty river? Uh, it's not a Deschutes brewery beer. It's like bush light. You know, it's, it's where my mind goes with Deschutes. <laughs> There's a value distinction is the point. Uh, and so I think this passage is, is perfect for us. Because I'll tell you how I pray 
or how I, I used to, I'm more and more I'm learning to pray differently. I'm not there. I'm not even close to being there, but I'm learning, right? When I pray, it's like this. God, I need $40,000. The church, your church needs $40,000. We don't need forty. We Actually, we do. But I, I'm not, it's not a real, I'm like, <laughs> I'm using past illustrations, right? But it's like, you know, we need to make this higher. That higher costs $40,000. Um, you know, God, I, Please don't put this in time. I'm talking theoretically like I've been in this place a dozen times with Antioch, right? But that costs this, so then I need this money. I need, what, what I need and what your power has to do is bring $40,000. That can really only happen a couple ways. Somebody walks into my office and says, here's $40,000. Somebody calls Kip on the phone and says, here's $40,000 worth of stock, okay? Or... I get a letter in my mail that says bank error in your favor. <laughs> and I, I, I fall to my knees and go, um, mountains can really move. Um, uh, here's $40,000. That's really all God has that he can do. There's really nothing else God can do. It's those, those things. And so you pray and pray and pray, and it's $40,000. 40. 40, and then 40 gets tattooed to your mind. You're walking around, you see 40 everywhere. Everyone that walks into your office, you're like, ah, you don't have that much money. <laughs> um, but he does. I wonder, I wonder, you know, and, and you kind of go like this, and then one day you wake up, and there's an email in your inbox, and it's somebody that's, that's just moved to town that used to do what it is you're trying to hire. And it's saying, hey, God called us to Bend, Oregon. I was, crazy experience. And, it, you know, I, I, I've literally met, like, a couple in Bend, Oregon that felt called to come here. Anyone else? That's, I, I didn't set that joke up right, did I? That's like, a, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm, uh, it's a joke to me because it's like, I think God has literally called 20,000 people to move to Bend and they just haven't figured it out yet for some grand purpose God has to use Bend to change the world. Um, but haven't you guys met people that, that can't explain why God led them here? You know what I'm talking about? Um, it is crazy how many people have moved to Bend with crazy circumstances not understanding why. And so then all of a sudden there's this person saying, I used to do this job. God led us to bend. I really just want to serve. I don't need to get paid for it. Um, and, uh, and, and you're like, okay, yeah, okay, next meeting. Um, but before that next meeting, I need to go have a talk with God. That $40,000 hasn't shown up yet. You know what I'm saying? And you, you get, you know, you keep, and then a week later, you're wondering, what, where's the, and then pretty soon it begins to dawn on you um, this guy, this, I met with this couple and they're getting involved and they're killing it. It's unbelievable. I couldn't have imagined it going this well. And, and then you're still, because you're programmed this way, now I, I, I don't know that I need the 40000 as much, but I need it, God, for you to prove to me that you can do it because your power is, is hanging. My belief in your power is hanging in the balance here. If I can't see this mountain move, how am I going to believe that faith is efficacious? And so you kind of keep praying. Now it's about testing God. And then meanwhile, this couple over here is changing the face of the church. 
and you're over here, and then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you're like, um, maybe I'm stuck right here. And God, long time ago, answered the prayer, and he's moving his plan forward, and somehow I'm supposed to be over there. And not only that, but somehow maybe it's me that was trying to dictate the terms of how God was going to exercise his power and make himself known in my life. I was so hung up on dollars and, and the addition of $40,000 that I didn't notice that God is, is often a God of subtraction and he took the 40000 off the plate and supplied what the 40000 would have brought in terms of ministry capacity. And I somehow missed it. But it's not accidental. God was moving in this couple's life years before, steering them and leading them so that at this moment he would supply what was lacking for his church. And I was so hung up on dictating the terms. It's got to be with a magic wand and it's got to be with this kind of incantation. And it needs to be in the clean river. Um, it needs to be 40,000 cash up front, not, not 10,000 with the promise of, you know, three more tens. Like, you know, it has to be packaged this way because that's the way I can conceive of it. And then pretty soon, because that's the only way that I can conceive of it, I'm putting God on the test for that, never recognizing and realizing that God gets to dictate the terms of how his power is administered. You know, the disciples were so caught up on Jesus coming into Jerusalem in power and starting a revolution that would put him on the throne that they never really realized that coming in, in to Jerusalem and dying and resurrecting was the greatest power that Jesus could possibly wield and would have the greatest influence in shaping a moral and righteous culture that would understand the nature of love is not benefiting from a just society, but sacrificing so that there can be the creation of a just and righteous society. The power inherent in Jesus' death and resurrection was so much greater than what the disciples could conceive of. Human kings can wield power. Human kings can make laws. Only God's son can die and rise again, bringing about the grace that's needed to fill in the gaps on a bunch of half and broken and lopsided people. But they couldn't conceive of it. And so this story of Naaman is so typical of how we go into our prayer life asking to see the power of God, trying to, in some sense, hitch God up and put him on the horns of the dilemma to where he has to answer our prayer the way we're wording it, rather than answering it in terms of the spirit of what it is we actually really need. Does that make sense? With your own prayers, God, save my business. God, save my house. God, I need a higher annual income because look, here's the reality of my finances. God, bring me a spouse. God, whatever it might be. The heart cry there, God certainly hears. 
how God moves in your life in the demonstration of his power might be radically different than how you envision it. So the first thing is we don't dictate the terms of God's power. Bonhoeffer once said, discipleship is not something we offer to Christ. Discipleship is not something we offer to Christ. Jesus, you get the opportunity to disciple me. And then a month later, oh Jesus, I need this. And we begin to set up the terms of how power is gonna work its way out in our life. And it's like, no. Jesus says, lay down everything. And the offer I'm making you is for you to be my disciple. We don't make the offer of discipleship to Christ. He makes it to us. There's this saying, don't ask God to bless what you're doing, but find what God is blessing and do that. Have you guys ever heard that? Don't ask God to bless what you're doing. Find out what God is blessing and go be a part of that. There, if you look at scripture, are circles of blessing. Blessings that come because of covenants. It's a very real thing that it's a lumpy thing in this world where God is blessing and who God is blessing and the greatest and quickest way to find yourself in a, in a place of blessing. It's like rain clouds. It doesn't rain uniformly everywhere. And if you can look up and see where God is reigning his blessing and you have the faith and the desire to be with God enough to say, I'll relocate to you, God. I'm not gonna expect you to relocate to me and you chase after that, you're gonna find yourself in a position of blessing. It's the same with a church. If you serve, you find that you begin to um, experience the blessings of a church rather than sitting back and saying, when is the church gonna come bless me? When are those pastor is going to come visit me. Well, those pastors, there's 20 places you could have found yourself with those pastors or elders or ministry leaders during the week co-laboring with them. There's something about picking up your feet and moving and relocating that shows whether it is we're trying to put ourselves in the, in the Jordan River, in the messy river, in the place where we're supposed to be, in the place where God has has kind of intimated that he's gonna bless rather than saying it's cleaner over here, it's prettier over here. I like how it looks over here. Why won't God bend to me? The first thing is we don't get to dictate the terms. The second thing is God's power is a sustaining, often and, and, and arguably foremost, a sustaining power. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter four and I wanna read this whole chapter. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church which is a contentious church. Uh, I mean, uh, it's a contentious church. They're challenging him a, a lot. They're challenging his authority. They're challenging, who are you? Like, um, you keep telling us what to do, but you're like a bald dude. And you, you're not a good speaker. Um, you don't have a good sense of humor. You're not really fun to listen to, Paul. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, really, what's going on? And not only that, but, you know, your back is all jacked up. You're kind of awkward to be around. Like, from, a, from just a, you know, a human standpoint, you're a bit, it's, it's hard to introduce you to our friends. Um, and where's your power, Paul? Why is lightning not coming down from heaven when, when you walk and thunder following behind you? Like, why, why are you not robed in power if you're claiming to have this authority to tell us these spiritual truths. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. We, as, as preachers of the word, we, we speak plainly and authentically. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. If they don't have eyes to see it, it's because their mind is on something else. They're hoping in things that are perishing. And the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Ravi Zacharias, anyone know Ravi Zacharias? He does something with this verse, like Ravi's a true preacher. Like, I mean, you listen to Ravi, you'll get saved again. Um, he does something with this verse, if you can go track it down, that's unbelievable. And he talks about the Jews um, and the idea of light and the Greeks and, and how they... Um, how knowledge and philosophy, the, the tradition from, from Plato and Aristotle forward uh, that has a hold in the minds of the Greek culture. And then in the Roman culture, the idea of glory and the glory of Rome and all that. And then he comes back and he says, it's this, you know, he does this unbelievable spin and says, for God who said, let light shine out of his darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The light that is the whole driving thing of this Jewish culture and, and what you Greeks think is, is knowledge and the thing you should chase after and the highest virtue and what you Romans think is immortality in eternity, which is the glory of Rome, that all of the, the all stuff is wrapped together in this amalgam in the face of Christ Jesus. But we have this treasure, verse 7, in jars of clay. See the juxtaposition, this treasure, this immense treasure, the greatest of all treasures, uh, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. We have this treasure wrapped in jars of clay, earthen jars. So this powerful thing, this beautiful thing, this majestic, this majestic thing, it's, it's wrapped in clay, fragile earthy jars to show that this all-surpassing, there's the word power, is from God and not from us. The power of God is distinct from our earthly power. The power of God brings glory to God. We get to experience it, and joy is the outcome destined and apportioned for us, the glory for God. That's why when the apostles, if you know the story in the book of Acts, they come, and God's power is made manifest, and there's this, this sorcerer guy who looks at that, um, Simon, and says, I want that. 
Like, wow, there's a new game in town. I want that. Like, how do I get that? And, and the disciples are like, this, you're so far from this. You can't buy this. You can't have this. It's not about you, you see. We serve Christ and we're hard pressed on every side and we're victims of persecution. And in all of that, we have this humility and the joy of seeing the glory of God, the power of God, you know, wrapped in this resurrection life of Christ as we do his ministry and serve him. This is what's going on. And you're over there with yourself at the center of the story saying, I want that power. I want to be able to wave that wand. Like, you don't know what you're asking for. And so this power is wrapped in these earthly jars. Why, says Paul, so that it will be made known that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. You wonder why I don't look more like Brad Pitt or speak more like um, Martin Luther King Jr. or am more funny like, you know, whoever. Like, you, you guys are so looking for power in me, but it's not about me. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. So that the, the Greek here is this ongoing act of dying. This death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life at work in you. One of the biggest issues we have with power is that we think, oh, let me try and say this perfectly. We think our problem or our problems is the problem. We think our problems are the problem. Meaning, when we pray for the power of God to work in our life, what are we expecting? The eradication of the problem. See how that works? When we define the problem as the problem, then when we ask God for his power to work, we're expecting the eradication or the solution to the problem. And I would put forth to you that thinking our problems are the problem is the problem. Thinking that our problems is the problem is the problem. Why? Because one of the greatest lessons of the power of God as shown in this passage and, and many others is that God's power at work in our life is a sustaining power despite our problems. In other words, God's power, when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because your grace is made, um, uh, I started that verse wrong, so now I can't remember it. Um, your grace is made, uh, your power is made perfect in weakness. Someone, someone help me out. So then when I am weak, then I am strong. Because the weaker I am, 
the more I sustain at the, at the level of faith and the ability to continue to minister, even though everyone else would have cut and run by now, the ability for me to continue to do that and do it with joy so that my body language still shows something radically uh, other-earthly. There's no explanation for that person right there to sustain and to keep going and to keep persevering and to endure like they're doing. When I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because God's grace is made perfect in my weakness as I continue and sustain. And he gets the glory and I get the joy. So we're hard-pressed but not crushed. Because God is sustaining us through the power of the resurrection that is at work in our life as we have faith in Christ Jesus. And so I've got these problems. My human self looks at that and says, I need the magic wand. If faith is at work, it's going to move mountains. It's going to fix the problems. So God, how come my problems aren't being fixed? How come that person that I'm praying for isn't getting healthy? How come the cancer is not going away? How come my enemy today isn't, isn't, isn't having the IRS send him an audit letter? I mean, I prayed abuse upon that person. Where is it? How come today I, I'm not getting the letter saying whether I got that job or not? How come my problems aren't being erased? How am I going to continue to serve you, God, while your power is in question? The jury is still out because you have not moved. And we're expecting our problems to be, to be resolved as we call on God's power. And what we're missing is that the power of the resurrection that's at work in our life is despite our problems. And it leads us to be able to have love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, mercy, self, whatever, whatever, the fruits of the Spirit. Um, it, it's working that in our life despite the circumstances. And so our biggest problem, I think, often in faith and with the power of God is thinking that our problem is the problem. And frankly, our problem is that we've framed it wrong. Our problem is that we think the problem is the problem. And when we renounce everything to follow Christ in discipleship, the idea here is that we are making a commitment to suffer. We're making a commitment to follow even if it takes us into deep and dark valleys. We're making a commitment to follow even if it costs us wives or children or family or jobs. But we're making that commitment to walk this road knowing that the power of God in Christ that is going to be in us is greater than the power of our problems so that whatever our problems are, we can be sustained in that and still manifest the fruit of the Spirit and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that is in the face of Christ Jesus because that is the face that we behold. Do you see that? Your greatest problem today might be that you walked in thinking that your problem is your problems. When what is available to you and what you could be asking God for is the power to sustain and bear up underneath your problems. That is probably the last thing you want to hear this morning. Because we're fixers in America. Our problems need to be fixed. Not only that, but we have this notion in America that everything has to have an upward trajectory. 
everything. Everything has to be getting better or something is wrong. If everything is not getting better, then God, I don't understand how you really are powerful. It's a myth of progress that other cultures don't have, but America, because we really are young, we've kind of bought into this myth of progress. And so it's really hard because what I'm doing is I'm challenging some of our deepest held worldview assumptions that God's will for your life might just be greater suffering. God's will for your life might just be that your problems are gonna grow, not shrink. God's will for your life very well may be the very last thing you want. But in faith, all of Scripture communicates that if we accept God's will for our life and trust that He will give us the power to sustain under whatever it is He calls us to do, we will receive that power. That is why every time God calls somebody, it, it, it's, if, you, if you talk to theologians, there's a formula for it. But there are a half dozen places where God commissions somebody into his service. Moses, Joshua, others. He does it with his disciples, the Great Commission. You want to know what's amazing about the Great Commission? Is that it's in the formula that God uses all through Scripture. Here's the formula. I am God. Meaning, um, what I'm about to say has all authority, right? Um, cap, what, what you're going to hear right now is capital letters, uh, thus saith the Lord. So Moses, go lead my people out of Israel. Joshua, take my people into the land, okay? Okay. Um, that's maybe not what I had planned this year. Can that be a part of the five-year plan? Can you send somebody else? I think I'm busy. Uh, it's daunting. So then here's the next part. Whatever, whatever God says after the thus saith the Lord is big, it's daunting. Then the, ver the very next phrase shows God's leadership and sensitivity to the human condition. Don't worry. The victory is already secure and I will go with you. The power and the presence of God will go before you and it will be your rear guard. Meaning, I will relationally be present to you and where I am, my power will be made manifest. So although it might be difficult, although you might be challenged, I will create the way, even if it means parting the Red Sea. Even if it means whatever, I will be with you. So therefore, take heart and be of great courage. Okay? So what I said was the Great Commission where Jesus talks to disciples, what's amazing about it isn't that he said go make more disciples, which is what we always talk about, right? Go make more disciples. It's, it's what pastors love to preach, you know, because you guys aren't making enough disciples. You're not, you're not, there's not enough, there's more empty seats up there. So go make more disciples and bring them into to the church here. Like we, we, we camp on that. What's amazing to me is that Jesus does it in the formula. Let's look at it. Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Let's hurry along. 
Matthew 28, the end of the chapter, it says this. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, the mountain where Jesus had told them, verse 16, Matthew 28, verse 16. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, now notice this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Boom. I'm in charge. All authority is mine. What's about to come next is going to have capital letters, and it's going to be in the form of, thus saith the Lord. All authority has been given to me. He's beginning the formula. Next thing. Therefore, based on this, I say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So that's the instruction. Sounds daunting. Sounds a bit overwhelming. All the nations, even Pakistan, even Somalia. I don't know, I don't know what that looks like. Teaching them to obey. Uh, Americans don't like to obey. They, they don't like that. Can I just tell them about you and that, that you'll save them if they ask for it? Can I just tell them that part? It's, it's a bit daunting. And then the last thing is this. And surely... I am with you always to the very end of this age. We fracture this. Go, go evangelize. Or you get a whole different group of Christians that are more feelers and, and they'll camp on. Jesus said he'd be with us always. No, that promise was given as an encouragement to those who are being commissioned. And we're going to have the full weight of responsibility and the corresponding fear that was going to go with that calling. God's will that they would go do his work. So when Paul says, we have this, this treasure in earthen jars that we're going out as those that are making known the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus so that, that it's going to be about the power of God, not about us, but about this. So as we're going out and we're, we're pressed, we're not crushed though. Why? Because Jesus who commissioned us to this task that is for all believers and for the church for all the age promised that he would go with us. His power and his presence would be with us. And so that while we're doing this, we might not look like we're anything great. Guess what? If you look at the, traje the trajectory, we're sustaining. There's no ex explanation for this. You want to see the power? Don't look for it in my flesh. Look for it in the gospel and the power of resurrection that is at work in our ministry. Me and the guys that are doing this because Jesus who said go had all the authority and when he said go, he made the promise that he would go with us. His power sustaining us. Is that not amazing? And so we have to be willing to embrace that Jesus has the authority. He's calling all of us. If you are sitting here and you claim to be in Christ, you have been called to be a witness. And if you go forward, it might not mean that all of your problems get fixed. Frankly, it might mean that you're going to sail headlong into a whole lot of problems you would have never chosen for yourself, like Moses, like Joshua, like Paul, like Peter, like John the Baptist, like Jesus himself. God, take this cup from me. 
but we will be able to sustain because Jesus will walk with us, his power being made known in our flesh, in our earthly and weak flesh, because there is no explanation why a group of people would do the things they're doing with the power that they're doing it if it was not for the work of Christ Jesus in our life. The power, the hope of resurrection. And so our faith is placed there. And we begin to realize that when Jesus says, if you have faith, just a little bit of faith, you can move mountains, that he was using hyperbole, just like when he said, look, it's, it's easier to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to get into heaven. Or, you know what, you drink a glass, but you, you, you strain out the gnat on the edge of the cup, the, 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 the ant, or, but then you, you swallow, uh, strain out the gnat, but swallow the, the camel again? No. What did they swallow? I don't know. You strain out a nap but swallow a something. Nobody here's read the Bible. <laughs> what? No, that's yeah, that's different. Uh, strain out the nap. Nobody's nobody's getting it. So that's your homework for next week: is to either confront me on being unbiblical, or tell me what verse I'm I'm setting. But so Jesus is using hyperbole here. And he's saying, listen, if you had faith, you could say that mountain move. What he's saying is you guys are underestimating the power of faith. He's not saying go draw up a mountain and sit there until you can make it move. God's going to work in the ways God's going to work. You believe that he will work and that it will be in power. Don't you frame up $40,000, or you can if you want, but don't think that God is beholden to your way of that happening. You step back and you say, God, you are so much bigger than me. Your power is so much greater than I believe it is. Let me see you uh, work, resolve, fix, bring about so that your will can continue to go forward as we are witnessing to to the resurrection of your son. Does that make sense? Jesus is using hyperbole to say you believe too little. Your faith isn't big enough. And so when we look at the rest of the New Testament, we see that worked out. That Paul went and made known the resurrection of Christ to, in his day, all the nations. That he stared persecution in the face and in some sense laughed at it. And when you look at Antioch, starting with two people or four people, And that there are people all around the country that know of Antioch and the work we're doing and the faith that we have. You begin to go, you know what? In some strange way, God really works in power. It's not not magic wand. But I need to believe more because if God was able to do that in the last five years, what could he do in the next five years? Last week we talked about Abraham and that God said, you and your wife, who are 80, are going to have a baby. And they kind of go, yeah, right, really? I don't know about that, God. Maybe that's not um, the way it should go down, because I just don't see that happening, right? So then it ends up happening. And like happens in a lot of uh, scripture, God names the baby. God names the baby. You want to know what the name Isaac means? means he laughs. He laughs. 
You want to know where else we see Isaac in Scripture? We don't. He's the only person named Isaac in Scripture. And God says, I'm going to remind you that when you laughed at my promise or the hope of my power that I delivered. And so I'm creating symbolism around this baby because you do not think highly enough of my power. You do not think highly enough of what faith can do to move mountains and bring about the unthinkable. So the next time we laugh at power or faith or when we're afraid to look at it because we think it's going to be like a Santa Claus syndrome that when we look at it, it's just going to lead to disappointment. We need to realize we don't get to dictate how it looks. We don't get to dictate the terms. And that frankly, God's power often is a sustaining power. And that we need to kind of strip ourselves of the American idea that it's always going to be about resolving problems and that rather it might be often about sustaining us through our problems. A friend of mine, Eugene Cho, said, sometimes when we pray about God moving mountains, we need to begin to think and be aware of or be open to the possibility that we're the mountain that needs to move. That we need to change the way we're thinking about how we're praying. Let's pray, and then we're going to do today's offering. Father, it's hard for us not to desire for our problems to be solved and resolved. And I just pray that you would open up our eyes to see how you might be fixing those problems through different means than what we're aware of. I also uh, asked this morning that however difficult you would help us be open to the possibility that it's not the problem that you're fixing, but it's us that you're willing to sustain. Teach us the power of your grace in our life. Help us grow in our ability to call aloud for that power, to cry out to you through the watches of the night that we might know the all-surpassing power of you in our life as you sustain us in this calling that you've called us to. We pray that now and through this week in Jesus' name, amen.